All right, let's uh, begin with prayer. Please stand with me. Our Lord, we thank thee for this time that thou hast given unto us to be able to open thy word of truth. And pray that thy spirit, who is our teacher, would enlighten our minds and give to us a holy desire and delight in being able to come to thee, to learn of thee, and to apply it in our lives that we may go forth and show forth our love for thee by our obedience to thy holy word. We ask, Lord, to cleanse us of our sins and cleanse our conscience, our minds, that they may be used of thee uh, to understand and to and to love thy word in Jesus name amen so if you have uh, your bibles turn with me to John 14 and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 22 John 14, 22, and the verses that we'll be focusing our attention upon this evening are verses 27 through 31. We'll just pick up the context in beginning in verse 22, John 14, 22. Judah saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the, uh, the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. So just by way of very brief review, Judas, and it says not Iscariot, so there was more than one Judas uh, among the t 12 disciples, the one that's 
not Iscariot, asked the Lord a question in verse 22. The question is this, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? They were looking for Jesus to manifest himself as the king uh, unto all of Israel uh, and basically to subdue the Romans uh, at that particular time. And so Judas wants to know, uh, why aren't you going to manifest yourself as the Messiah, as the king over the Romans, basically, to the world? And uh, the Lord says in verse 23, it doesn't maybe seem like an answer to that question, but it is. Both uh, verse 23 and verse 24 is the Lord, uh, would be the Lord's answer. Verse 23, if a man love me, he will keep my words. Jesus is basically saying that uh, he manifests himself unto the disciples because they love him. But he says in verse 24, he doesn't manifest himself to those who do not believe in him and who do not love him. And so this is a very very important for us to understand why does God reveal himself to us as opposed to uh, unbelievers he does not do so well again Jesus says I reveal in effect he's saying I reveal myself to those who love me and keep my commandments and show their love for me by their obedience to my commandments so if we want to know the Lord, if we want him to reveal himself to us, it doesn't come by way of our being estranged from him, being far from him. It comes from us being nearer to him, uh, having communion with him. Uh, in other words, spending time with the Lord. How do you get to know somebody? And how does that person get to know you? I mean, the Lord knows us inside and out, but... He reveals himself the closer we get uh, by way of wanting, desiring to know him. So um, it's, it's not rocket science. You know, if, if we want to know the Lord, if we want him to reveal himself to us, then it has to be a priority in our life. It has to be something important to us to spend time with him. And if we don't feel like God is revealing himself unto us, then I dare say we should look closely at our own desire. Do we want to spend time with him? This also comes out in how we keep the Sabbath day because the Lord has appointed the Sabbath day as a time to spend with him to basically uh, exclude our ordinary activities that we would do the other six days of the week so that we have that time free to spend with him. The Sabbath, though it includes spending time with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not the chief reason and purpose for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is primarily designated and set apart from the other days of the week that we might spend time with him 
And again, when we, when we say, in effect, uh, I'm going to go do my own thing on the Lord's Day, what we're basically saying is, Lord, no, I don't want to spend time with you. That's not important enough. That's not significant enough. Um, and uh, again, I think it's very, very important, the question Judas asked and the answer the Lord Jesus gave. Jesus also, by way of review from the last study, promises to his disciples that he would manifest himself to them by way of sending uh, the Comforter. Uh, the Comforter is the Holy Spirit to be with them in his place, in the Lord Jesus' place. Uh, Jesus is not going to be with his disciples bodily any longer. And so he is going to, however, send someone in his place. And we see that uh, in verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, so that's uh, in my place, he shall teach you all things, bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said unto you. So just as Jesus, when he was with his disciples, they were like in seminary for the three and a half years, with the Lord Jesus, being trained and taught. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be here any longer, but I am sending uh, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things that you need. First and foremost, to the apostles, what they need to know and remember by way of the Gospels that they wrote. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, uh, Matthew and John were of the twelve apostles. Mark and Luke were not, uh, but they got uh, uh, their information directly from the apostles uh, and what they included in the Holy Spirit, obviously, uh, inspired uh, what they included in their gospel accounts. But uh, the Holy Spirit was sent first and foremost to the apostles so that what they preached and what they taught after Jesus ascended into heaven would be exactly um, the teaching that came from the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit uh, was used in that way in a very unique way with the apostles uh, because we're not receiving revelation um, uh, any longer uh, as the apostles did. That biblical canonical revelation that we find in the New Testament is unique. However, in a more general sense, the Holy Spirit is given to us to enlighten our minds not by way of new revelation but by way of understanding the revelation that has been given to us and so the Holy Spirit is a gift to us as well uh, not in exactly the same way as with the Apostles because they they were absolutely foundational uh, to the establishment of, of the church the building of the church is built in Ephesians 2, upon the foundation of the, the apostles and the prophets. 
their ministry and giving to us the, the Word of God. However, the Holy Spirit is very much involved. In fact, we wouldn't know anything about uh, salvation. We wouldn't, I mean, we could read the words that are on the page, but we wouldn't truly know what was being said on the words of that page by way of moving us to receive Jesus Christ if it weren't for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has been given unto us. And so, again, his work is ongoing. Act extraordinarily with the apostles, ordinarily with us, uh, by way of uh, those who follow the apostles. So we come to verse 27 now, John 14, 27, and Jesus continues in his words to his apostles. Remember, they're still in the upper room where they celebrated uh, the Passover and then the institution of the Lord's Supper. They're still in that same setting in the upper room when he's uttering these words. Not until we get to verse 31 of this chapter where Jesus says, Arise, let us go hence, um, do they leave the upper room. But at this point, they're in the same location, beginning with the, in chapter 13 through chapter 14. So, Jesus comforts uh, his disciples with yet another promise in verse 27. And this time it's a promise of peace. Peace. Two aspects to peace that I want to emphasize, that the Bible emphasizes. First of all, peace with God. And then the second is the peace of God. So let's... Let's talk about these two aspects, first of all. Peace with God. This is a peace that removes the enmity that separates God from us and us from God. What is it that separates us? It's our sin. There is no peace with God for those who disbelieve, who do not believe the Lord Jesus, uh, and the sin that they have committed has not been forgiven. That sin remains. That sin then continues to be a barrier, a wall, an enemy between God and man. And not until that enmity of sin is removed is there peace between God and man. Romans 5.1 illustrates, speaks to this kind of peace, peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, justified means declared righteous, therefore being declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is such a glorious blessing 
And this is a one that we must continually go back to as we trust in, in the Lord that God is no longer our enemy. God is no longer our judge in the sense that, that uh, we are under his condemnation, under his wrath. Uh, that has been removed and there is now peace. Another word for peace is reconciliation. We are reconciled to God. God is reconciled to us. Whereas before, God was our enemy and we were God's enemy. Now he's our loving father and we are his beloved children. That enmity is forever, once and for all, removed because of justification by faith alone. We're in the Lord. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly keeping God's law for us so that when we believe that righteousness of Christ is credited to our account, our sins, which separated us from God, are placed to the account of the Lord Jesus and he was sacrificed and bore the wrath of God in order to deliver us from the guilt of that sin, all of our sins. To deliver us from the guilt of sin, to deliver us from the condemnation of sin, and to deliver us and set us free from the power and dominion of sin over our lives. That's, again, the precious blessing of what Jesus accomplished. So that's what we're talking about, first of all, when we speak of, of peace, peace with God. That has to be uh, first. There cannot be the peace of God unless there is first peace with God through justification by faith alone. But what is then peace of God? Well, this, this kind of peace uh, is being set free from in, in our daily walk as a Christian, being set free from fear, and we all fear, being set free from worry, we all fall into worry, being set free from anxiety, we all fall into anxiety even as Christians, but the Lord Jesus has set us free from the dominion of fear and worry and anxiety because he, in having died and having been raised from the dead, is Lord over all. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over all of those sins that tempt us and take us away from trusting him, hoping in him, and where uh, we're hindered from having that peace 
a peace of God that passeth all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. Philippians 4, 7 speaks of the peace of God, which the Lord says, or Paul says in that verse, that peace of God shall guard your hearts. The word guard there uh, is a military term means to set a garrison around of soldiers around your heart angelic as it were angelic hosts set around your heart to protect you and so we as christians have that's a part of our inheritance as a christian now granted we don't exercise and avail ourselves of that inheritance as we ought to. And that's our sin when we don't. But that's our inheritance. It's not as though we have to go out and do something in order to earn what Jesus has already purchased for us by way of the peace of God which passeth all understanding so that we're not, again, being carried along with, in panic, along with the world in whatever trial or tribulation or in whatever catastrophe or whatever it may be that arises. We do not have to be carried away in that manner because the Lord has given to us his peace. That's what he says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And so whenever we are tempted to uh, fear, to worry, let's begin to analyze that and, and to stop ourselves in, the tra in, in, in our tracks at that point and say, why am I doing this? I don't have to. I'm not, I'm not under the dominion of that anxiety and worry and fear any longer. Jesus has broken that hold and that dominion of that over me. I, he has given to me as a part of my inheritance his peace. And so if we will simply stop and say, I do not need to, I do not have to, fall into this trap of the enemy to fear, to worry, to be anxious, whatever it is. We can't justify. That's not trusting God. Sometimes, again, we, we I think as Christians, tend to justify when it's a, a really important matter that we worry about it. Certainly, I'm not saying that we can't be concerned uh, and be burdened about important things. That, I'm not saying that the important things should not have any um, seriousness uh, uh, and that we should not take them seriously. I'm not saying that at all. But I think that having a, a serious outlook on something that's important as opposed to being carried away with um, fear and worry where again it's just controlling us that's something quite different uh, and I just 
for myself and for you, um, just want all of us to be able to realize the precious inheritance that is ours, the peace of God that passeth all understanding that he promises will guard our hearts and our minds. And again, as we, as we draw nearer unto the Lord, uh, more and more of that peace of God is realized in our lives. The farther and farther we are away from the Lord, the less we commune with Him, the more likely those temptations to fear, to worry, be caught up in anxiety are going to overwhelm us. And so again, communion with Christ, spending time with Him, in His Word, in prayer, is so vital and so important to enjoying our inheritance. Again, communion with Christ is not us earning an, an uh, inheritance. Communion with Christ isn't something we do uh, in order to pay for what Jesus Christ has already purchased for us. Communion with Christ is simply the means by which we enjoy more and more of the inheritance that he has given to us, that he's already purchased for us, that is ours in Jesus Christ. This peace that uh, Jesus speaks of here, he says is, not something the world can give at all. It cannot give true peace. Worldly peace is basically a worldly understanding of peace. It is the mere um, cessation, stopping of outward conflict. In other words, the idea of worldly peace is kind of just running up the flagpole, a white flag of truce. Though rage and though enmity continue within the hearts of the parties that are at odds with one another. It's simply a truce. And I, I will say this, uh, perhaps, uh, I mean, I would rather there be a cessation of hostilities outwardly, even if there isn't the work of God within somebody's heart, then not to have the cessation of hostilities. Uh, I'd rather have two nations that are not dropping bombs on one another, missiles uh, upon one another, even though they may hate one another. Um, that's better for our outward and physical well-being for sure and likewise within a family but I want you to understand um, that's not however biblical peace that's not uh, the true peace simply the cessation of outward hostilities while within there is still anger and bitterness raging 
toward another person or another party or another group of people. To temporarily agree to not destroy one another is hardly the idea of biblical peace. Again, biblical peace is reconciliation of adversaries by way of removing the enmity, the offense that exists. That's biblical peace. That's going the full extent of peace, not simply removing outward hostility, but it's reconciliation of hearts one to another. A peaceful home, as I said earlier, is not merely a temporary truce to stop yelling at one another while yet despising one another within the heart. And the answer to all of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to removing barriers that exist between us and God, barriers that exist between um, one another, between uh, family members, between members within the body of Christ, uh, between people at work, the answer, or between uh, various groups within a nation, racial groups, uh, religious groups, whatever it may be, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that removes sin and rebellion from our hearts against God and against his commandments so that there can be peace, so that there can be reconciliation. For example, between blacks and whites or uh, any majority versus minority racial group. The answer is to that, those types of problems uh, is not more legislation. Uh, is, is not reverse discrimination, affirmative action. The answer to those issues is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the gospel comes, it removes those barriers, as the Lord says in his word, between Jews and Gentiles. That was the great racial barrier at that time between Jews and Gentiles. And it still removes the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, but it also removes the, the barrier between, as I said, any majority versus minority racial groups. <clears throat> removes again barriers between the rich and the poor uh, between male and female whatever else you know by way of uh, group identity that there is that causes these um, 
these conflicts within society, it's the gospel that makes us one. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is needed. Not more political solutions, not the right political party. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that tears down those walls. And in light of, still on verse 28, in light of uh, this consolation of peace that uh, Jesus promises to his disciples and to us as well, he basically repeats what he said back in John 14, 1, when he says, let not your heart be troubled at the end of verse 27. He said that in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. So he repeats himself. Uh, again, repetition is good, it's important. We need repetition uh, to learn. And uh, we actually know we are learning when we don't resent the fact that, that uh, those over us repeat something to us, but we embrace it, and we're thankful, and we can affirm, yes, that's right. And so the Lord Jesus does that here. And so he says, let not your heart be troubled. And then he adds, neither let it be afraid. Where the peace of Christ reigns, where the, no, this is, again, just something to highlight. Where the peace of Christ reigns, fear, worry, anxiety cannot reign. Okay? It's either one or the other. Where Jesus and his peace reign, it subdues. It overcomes, it overwhelms our fears, our worries, and our anxieties. I like to uh, remind myself when I'm tempted and fall into fear, worry, anxiety, um, just like you. I like to remind myself that uh, God is not panicked. Though I may feel panicked, God's not panicked at all. I like to remind myself, God's not surprised by what I'm going through right now. I might have been caught by surprise, but he's not. He's not worried. He's not, as, as it were, uh, biting his nails. None of that affects God at all as to what I'm going through. I find that very helpful to, to realize that and, and to realize that if God's not panicked and He is sovereign, He's in control, then neither should I be. Neither should I be overwhelmed by this either. And so, in my prayer and calling out to Him at, in, at those times, I... I pray, Lord, lift me up by faith into the heavenlies. 
into the atmosphere of thy peace. Just as we're breathing the air around us here, lift me up into those heavenly places to be able to breathe in the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Verse 28, Jesus says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So he says, Jesus says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. So I guess the question would be, when did Jesus say that? Well, in verses earlier in the chapter, John 14, verses 2 through 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's basically reminding them again, repetition, reminding them again what he had said earlier. Jesus is going away. When did he go away? Uh, at his ascension, bodily. He departed from the apostles. But he says he's coming again. Uh, ultimately, I, I think that refers to his second coming, but I think that uh, a more near reference of Christ coming again after he ascends into heaven, a more near reference to him coming again uh, would be in the person of, his whole, of the Holy Spirit, uh, that he would be coming again to his uh, disciples, to his apostles, uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Notice John 14, verses 17 through 18. <clears throat> well, verse 16, begin there. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Okay, verse 18, I will come to you. When? Well, in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, I remind uh, you that uh, though we do not bodily have the Lord Jesus with us, we have the Lord Jesus with us in the Holy Spirit, whom he has sent to abide with us and to dwell with us to be among us and to live within us as his people. Jesus then goes on to say, uh, my father is greater than I. Now, uh, that's a, a passage in which um, the cults, Jehovah Witnesses, will definitely take you to, to try to convince you 
that uh, Jesus is not God. And uh, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not denying that he and the Father are one as to divine nature. John 10.30, you remember we've covered this, John 10.30, where the Lord Jesus said, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. And again, uh, just an important piece of grammatical information. He uses, when he says, I and my Father are one in John 10.30, he uses, for the word one, he uses the masculine form for the word one, ace. As opposed to the neuter form of one, hen. And that's again significant in that he's emphasizing that the Father and the Son are one as to nature. And not simply one as to purpose um, or goals, but one as to nature. The Father and the Son are eternally two distinct persons, along with the Holy Spirit being a third distinct person. But all have the same divine essence or substance or nature. So having said that, what does the Lord Jesus mean, my Father is greater than I? Well, it's in this sense that he says that. Because Jesus as mediator in the covenant of grace, he humbled himself and he took on himself the form of a servant in becoming uh, a human being. Fully God, 100% God, 100% man. Son of God, meaning that he has uh, the nature of God. Son of man, meaning that he has the nature of man. And so his humiliation, and in his humiliation, he says, my father is greater than I. He came to fulfill the will of the Father as mediator. And so in that sense, not as to his nature, but as to him being mediator, becoming a servant, uh, humbling himself as he did. In that sense, the Father is greater than I. Verse 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he has plainly declared to them that he is bodily leaving them, so that when that event comes, that is ascension, they will remember his words, and their faith will not be destroyed, their faith will not be injured, their faith will not be harmed, their faith will be increased because they will know that Jesus 
has done what he said he would do, that he would ascend into heaven. He would not be with them bodily, uh, that he would be leaving them bodily. And so again, he tells them this, that their faith not be shaken, but that their faith be increased when it actually happens. And then verse 30, the Lord says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. I will not talk much with you. That is, the Lord is saying, he only has, Jesus is saying, that in effect, I only have a very short time to talk with you before I'm arrested. That's going to happen um, that same night that he is arrested. He's going to be taken into custody. He's going to be examined by the Sanhedrin early that morning, next morning, and uh, then uh, be taken before uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, then before Herod, the king, and then back to Pilate and be condemned to die upon the cross. And so all of that coming very, very soon is what Jesus means when he says, I will not talk much with you. Not because he uh, was just going to stop talking to them, but there were certain events that are going to come to pass that are going to prevent him from being able to talk with them as he was able to do before this happened. And then he says uh, in verse 30 also, for the prince of this world cometh. <clears throat> the prince of this world uh, is, of course, Satan. Uh, he uh, is uh, not the prince of this world by way of divine right. Uh, he doesn't have a right to hold the position of prince of this world. He is only called the prince of this world because he has deceived by stealth has uh, uh, brought into his kingdom those whose minds, those whose hearts uh, follow Satan rather than following God. It's not because he holds some kind of divine right to be the prince of this world, but he has usurped whatever power that he has uh, it's not a power that he holds over God, over Christ. It's something that the Lord permits him to exercise. Just as, just as um, Satan is said to be the God of this world, not because God, the supreme, the one true living God, has made him, Satan, a lesser God, but because the people of this world worship Satan and therefore in the same way um, he's the prince of this world because the people of this world follow him interestingly 
that unbelievers in this world, unbelievers in this world, and we have to be very, very careful of this ourselves in any state of rebellion in our own hearts and lives, that we think we're doing or the world thinks that it's doing its own will uh, when it does whatever it wants to do. They, they, they have the idea, the mind, well, I'm simply doing what I want to do. Uh, I'm being true to myself. I'm following my dreams. I'm doing this uh, because I want to. But what they are dis deceived about is that when they say that, they are actually doing what Satan wants them to do. So when we say, I'm doing what I want to do, rather than what God wants me to do, we are doing what the devil wants us to do. Because the devil does not want us to follow the Lord. The devil does not want us to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and to his commandments. So that when, if the devil can make us think or, or cause us to think or suggest to us that we are doing simply what we want to do and not following the devil in doing that, he doesn't care. All he wants is that we not follow Christ. He doesn't care that, that he's not acknowledged as the one whom we're following. He doesn't care if we're simply following and doing what we want to do. All that's important to him is that we don't follow Christ, that we don't follow Christ's commandments. But that's what's happening. That's what's going on when we do our will rather than doing God's will. We're doing Satan's will. And we need to recognize that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, first of all, speaking of the servant of the Lord, probably the, uh, the minister, the pastor, uh, the elder, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out, notice, out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So those who, again, are following their own will are ensnared by the devil to do the will of the devil. Jesus says that he hath, that is, Satan, the prince of this world, hath nothing in me. What's uh, the Lord saying at this point? Well, he's basically saying that, uh, that Satan <clears throat> doesn't have control over him. 
He has nothing. He doesn't have a hold on him. He has nothing in me. Certainly, especially in the Lord Jesus, who is sinless, who is perfect, who is fully God and fully man, Satan has nothing in the Lord Jesus. Even though Satan had come against the Lord Jesus many times throughout his ministry, uh, by way of the temptations when he was in the wilderness, those, those temptations uh, where the, Satan tempted the Lord Jesus, Satan came against him, but Satan didn't have anything in the Lord Jesus. Um, the many examples of demon possession <clears throat> that we find in the New Testament, and Jesus exercised his power and casting out those demons that demonstrated Satan doesn't have anything uh, over the Lord Jesus, has no control over the Lord Jesus. Um, even the envy of the religious leaders, the hostility, the cruelty, the hatred that they had for the Lord Jesus, uh, Satan was at work. Uh, through that, but he did not have a hold on Jesus, even though um, Satan stirred up the hearts of these religious leaders to carry out the plan of the Lord of, of the Lord God. Uh, it was again in their envy and their hatred of Christ, falsely accusing him, uh, torturing him, uh, crucifying him. All of that that was out of hatred for Christ. And yet God was overruling all of that hatred for Christ, for our good, in suffering in our place, taking our sins upon himself that we might be delivered in order that we might be delivered from The guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin, the dominion of sin. That's also true of us. When uh, Jesus says that Satan has nothing in me, we need to understand that when we believe in Christ, trust in him to be our Lord and our Savior, we are in Christ and Satan has nothing in us as well. Satan does not control us. He can tempt us, but he cannot control us any more than he can control the Lord Jesus because we are in Christ. And finally, in verse 31, Jesus says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. How did uh, Jesus demonstrate his love for the Father? He says, that the world may know that I love the Father, how will the world know that Jesus loves the Father? 
because he keeps the commandments. He does the will of the Father because he doesn't rebel against his Father, but follows and does what his Father has commanded him to do. That's how the world will know that the Son loves the Father, is by that willingness, voluntarily going to uh, the cross, suffering for his sheep out of love for us, yes, but out of love for his Father, because that was the will of the Father. And so, again, Jesus, as he ends this chapter, makes it clear that the evidence of love is doing what God commands. Not rebelling against what God commands, not doing our own thing, but in, to the contrary, being willing even to sacrifice our rights and privileges in order to serve others. Just as Jesus demonstrated that he sacrificed his right as being master, that he became a servant in washing the feet of his disciples. They should have been washing his feet. He was the master. He was the Lord. They were the servants. But he became a servant. He sacrificed his rights. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he sacrificed his right to have a wife. He could have been married, like Peter. Peter was married, contrary to the practice of the Church of Rome that says that... Uh, that that's not a, a, as holy of an estate uh, for uh, a minister to be married or a priest to be married or the Pope to be married or whatever. Um, uh, Peter was married. He had a, a mother-in-law who had a fever. Jesus healed her of that fever. And so uh, love is about giving up our rights. Uh, again, there's, there's a time in which we do not sacrifice our rights because that would be to disown what God calls us to do in certain situations. Uh, we never have the right to sin against God. And so if somebody calls us to, to break one of God's commandments, uh, that's not a right that we have. But we can voluntarily give up other privileges and rights that don't call us to sin against God. Paul wasn't sinning against God by way of being single, and he was single in order that he might not be accused by the various churches at that time of trying to fleece the flock and simply make money off of the flock. He was being accused of that. And so when that accusation came against him, he said, I would rather not 
even draw a salary. I'd rather not uh, receive a stipend compensation, though I'm entitled to that. Though, again, that's my right. I'd rather give up that right in order to serve others without that accusation coming against me. And so at this point, Jesus says, Arise, let us go hence. And so this is at the point at which they leave the upper room. Not until we get to chapter 18, verse 1, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning the previous chapters, he went forth with his disciples uh, over the brook Kedron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. So, again, the Garden of Gethsemane, entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, happens in John 18, beginning with verse 1. So, uh, after the Lord Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room at the end of chapter 14, we have chapters 15, 16, and 17 that occur uh, somewhere having left the upper room and before they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that's, that's where we're going to be heading um, in the next study, uh, John chapter 15. And so in the history of redemption, uh, we are moving ever closer uh, to the cross, that event that changed all of history the cross of Jesus Christ, crucifixion, and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All right, let's stand together in prayer. Our Father, we give thee praise and thanksgiving for the pay, uh, peace that Lord Jesus has secured for us as a part of our inheritance. Lord, let us not uh, be led by our emotions, be in panic and, and in confusion and turmoil, but help us, our Lord, to arise by faith into the atmosphere of thy peace and to breathe in thy peace as thou art God. There's no, no fear or worry or anxiety. Help us, our Lord, to walk and breathe in the wonders of that peace that Jesus has already secured for us and purchased for us. We ask, Lord, that thou would bless the uh, words that the Lord Jesus has spoken and, have, and, and the words that have been applied uh, through this study to our lives, that thou, Lord, would use them to build us up in our faith and grant to us hope Lord, uh, for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.